what I've come to believe is that what people crave most is human connection. And what people are waiting for is some form of permission to have that connection. That permission can look like a bike ride. That permission can look like group meditation. Where this becomes extra powerful is when that group of people are contributing to something together, like a mass meditation. We all need to be quiet and participate in that way for it to work. Or if we're having a group conversation at a Medi club that when we break up into the small groups to share, that people are taking the time and, and presenting the courage to share their own story, right? When we're contributing to the greater experience, we start to feel like we're needed in some way. And it creates a sense of, of purpose. It's, it's, it creates a sense of contribution that I believe we all want most and what I think is missing from so many of our lives and our careers. That is meditation leader and founder of The Big Quiet, Jesse Israel. And this is episode 308 of Better Than Yesterday. And welcome to episode 308 of Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and thank you so much for being here. Today's show is with meditation leader and founder of The Big Quiet, Jesse Israel. You can find him on Twitter at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Israel, like the place. Yeah, you can find out more about him there, and I'll tell you more about him in a moment. If you're new, g'day, welcome. Hi, I'm Osher Ginsberg. Um, I'm a TV guy and a podcaster from Sydney, Australia. I have a nine-week-old baby strapped to my chest. He might wake up while I do this. There he is. And this podcast is simply a conversation to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. No matter what, in the next hour and a bit, you are going to hear something that'll make you think, oh, I never really considered it like that. And hopefully today becomes a little bit better than yesterday. That's what we're here to do. That's what we've done here for the last 307 episodes. There's plenty more to check out. I hope you're good. I hope you're well. Hello from a blisteringly hot spring day in Sydney. Not a summer's day, a spring day, 35 goddamn degrees, and the middle of summer is three months away. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, it's tough. Uh, Warm days are tough for me. But speaking of warm days, just the other day it was 34 degrees, so a little bit cooler, 34. Uh, Still miles away from when it's normally this hot, which is January, and it's October. And I was heading in to go see my psychologist, and uh, we're doing exposure work at the moment, and it's a little like... I'm, you know, deliberately going to go see a personal trainer to just do one hour of burpees straight. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you're heading in there, you're like, fuck, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, when you do that many burpees, like at some point I'm going to vomit. It's, it's, that's what's going to happen. Like it's along those lines. So I'm heading in to do my exposure therapy with her. And she, um, she contacted me and she said, hey, how about we have our uh, appointment in the park, little park, little park across the street from her office. This is a little square of green across the road from her office on a bench in the full heat of the sun. And like I know how to do, because this scared the shit out of me, made me recoil in horror, I said yes before I could do anything else. I said yes before I had the chance to write, I can't. It was bloody tough. And for someone who, for a while, literally couldn't go outside and feel the sun on my skin, uh, I was so sick for a while that I could not do that. 
Um, it was quite hardcore, to be honest. But I know that if I keep retreating from the things that trigger me, the things that I ruminate on, the things that set the cataclysm machine going in my head, if I keep walking backwards from the things that frighten me, I will end up living my life on the head of a pin. And that is no way to live life. So I said, yes. Now, mercifully or horribly, by the time I, I got there, the sun had disappeared, but it had disappeared behind the thunder cloud, the thunderhead of a massive tropical storm that was building in spring. And we're nowhere near the tropics. It was a tough session, but I'm grateful that I did it. And um, midway through it, she kind of told me, you know, I kind of asked her, I was like, is it always going to be this way? She goes, look, it's always going to be tough. And she's told me that it's always going to be tough. But I know that if I want to have a life where I can be here in the moment with my family, my work, you, not stuck in my brain in a swirling sea of what if, well, then I can handle it because I'd, I'd rather be right here making a memory of my son asleep on my chest, my stepdaughter out there making a glorious omelette uh, in the kitchen, talking to you, feeling the complete surrender, the weight of his tiny body pressed into me by this baby carrier. He's completely trusting me. His little breaths, the smell of his head, the feeling of his chest breathing in and out against mine. I'd rather have that memory if a version of whatever my brain is trying to tell me ever happens. I'd rather remember this than spend this time worrying about that. That is hard work. It is like doing burpees. Sometimes I want to vomit, but it is worth it. So I guess what I'd tell you is that if your therapist challenges you, take the challenge. And yeah, I'm here to tell you, it sucks. It's hard. But slowly, 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 it's getting better and better and easier and easier. By that, I mean like by 0.1% every time, but it is the graph is moving. And I'm grateful that I'm back on meds to help that graph move. What I do like about it, and I would say this to you as well, is that my therapist is pretty good. About 15 minutes before we pull stumps, well, to be honest, like 15 minutes before the end of the session, we kind of pull stumps on the heavy lifting, is what I'm trying to say. Pull stumps is an Australian term. Um, that's the end of a cricket match. So uh, how do I put this in uh, international English? Uh, about 15 minutes before the end of the session, she we transition out of the heavy exposure stuff and she starts to then talk me back down and debrief me a bit so that I'm able to get back on my scooter and ride home without tears in my eyes and my heart being through my chest. So if you're going to do this kind of stuff, make sure you find a therapist and talk to your therapist about making sure that they then prep you to then go back out through the airlock into the outside world again. Very important. I did want to thank everybody uh, on iTunes for reaching out. It, it's an extraordinary help uh, here at the show when you do let somebody else know about the show, when you tell someone to listen, when you recommend it, when you show them how to download a podcast app and just let them know about the show. And like the, the next best thing you can do for us is, is leave a rating and a review. So thank you very much to Jace, who left five stars. Thank you. Uh, incredibly inspiring. The way Osher speaks with his guests as well as himself and how each person discussing issues so openly and honestly makes this podcast the best I've ever listened to. It makes me rethink my attitudes and views and inspires me to make changes and ever even knew I needed. A huge, definite must listen. Well, thank you. Tattooed Lady Mama 
says, Osha really sets the bar for a great podcast. I enjoy the depth of conversation with his guests and have been introduced to some great humans. I really enjoy Osha's honesty about his life and the frankness in his interview style. Also, as a new mum, I love hearing the occasional little bub noise in the background. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Wolfie, for helping out there. There's a few butt pats. Hang on, here's some butt pats. There you go. Seriously, I'm like the, the we have this crib. It's called a snoo, and we strap him into it, and it, and it basically wobbles him while he while he sleeps. And if he starts crying, it wobbles faster. And I'm the, I'm literally I'm the human snoo when he starts to <laughs> when he starts to stir. I just start jiggling my body. Anyway, I had another one here from uh, JDL who wrote, I've been listening to Osh's podcast for nearly a year. It's honestly so refreshing to hear someone as honest as he is about mental health. Osha provides a unique perspective on life, and I can't thank him enough. Whether I'm listening on the train or at the gym, he's always there to change the way I think and feel towards a more positive light. Thanks for all that you do. P.S. New theme song has grown on me, and I can't get enough. Me neither. New theme song is from uh, Mike Mills, also known as Toehider, T-O-E-H-I-D-E-R, on the internet. Uh, he's extraordinarily good at what he does, and um, we do love him here. And I, I will say, while I was on the uh, rating system in iTunes, I did check out the ratings for the new podcast I'm doing with Charlie called Dad Pod. And um, I've got to say a big thanks to Justin who reviewed Dad Pod. I have a new favorite podcast. I was looking often waiting for this to drop and was not disappointed by my own self-generated hype when it did. It's the perfect Venn diagram cross-section of the things and people I enjoy. I'm a dad. I enjoy the company of these gentlemen. It makes me laugh. It makes me reflect. But my main takeaway from Dad Pod is maybe with this podcast, Charlie might be able to make a profit. <laughs> It's a long, long-standing TOEFOP joke that they never make any money. Um, but thanks very much, Justin. Many, many thanks. Thanks to everybody that also sent out a, uh, a picture of where they're listening to the show. Just take a photo of what you're looking at, you know, and, and send it to me. It's the killer. I love it. Katya uh, sent a great picture. Just prepping my dinner for the family while listening to your reflection about your visit to Robinvale and the crisis affecting our farmers. Suddenly much more aware and thankful for this bounty of veggies that, let's face it, my kids will probably complain about. It's a great-looking salad. Nice one, Katya. Thanks very much. Send Osher email at gmail.com if you need to get him through. Sarah sent a cracking one of um, a her on a lunch break. Loving hear the new, love hearing the newborn wolfy gurgles and dad pats. Oh, he's starting to stir. All right, buddy, we'll get you some bottles in a sec. Thank you, Sarah. That's a, a, a cracking lunchbox you've got there. Nikki sent an email. You and I are about to clean out this totally out-of-control pantry together. Might take a couple of episodes. Love your work. Um, thanks, Nikki, for that. Um, really, uh, really appreciate Really appreciate that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You right there, buddy? So let me tell you about my guest today. Jesse Israel is a meditation leader and the founder of The Big Quiet, a movement that brings mass meditations to iconic spaces around the world. I know, buddy. He's been on this podcast before, and I'm just so damn happy to have him back to talk about his latest adventure. Uh, As someone who does his best to meditate every day, it's always great to hear from a professional that I should be finding it as hard as I'm finding it sometimes. (laughs) That's right, Wolfie. That is, in fact, the point. I'll let Jesse explain it more. Now, if you've heard about the science behind meditation and why it's a good idea, this chat will hopefully get you over the line to get going on a daily practice. We talk a bit about bicycles as well, which is great. If you like what you hear, you can find out more about Jesse on Twitter. He's Jesse Israel at J-E-S-S-E-I-S-R-A-E-L and also thebigquiet.com. Jesse and I caught up over Skype from his home in NYC. It's a phone call, but I hope you'll uh, persevere and appreciate the quality of the conversation versus the audio quality. Uh, so enjoy this conversation with Jesse Israel. Jesse, good morning. My Mac. It's been way too long. <laughs> it's been way too long. Hello from Sydney, Australia. Hello from the little office in our apartment, which we've just painted the walls of because there's a baby on the way, Jesse. Woo-hoo-hoo! I had a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I what had part- a feeling. Yeah, man. What part of New York are you in? Wow. Hold on. Before I answer that, how close to baby time are we? Well, as of this recording, we are f- – we're – 15, just under 15 weeks out. Wow, really close. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's the kind of, it's it's a little like when you're, uh, the only way I could describe it is in the Northern Territory here in Australia, it's pretty loose, pretty frontier. There's no speed limits. So you go, fuck yeah, I'll just just drive. And, And so you can, they recommend you do about 130. So I was doing about 140. All right, <laughs> which is in miles an hour, it's probably, I don't know, it's coming up on 90, all right? It's fast. Okay. The corners come at you pretty quick. And then you realize like, <laughs> oh, wow, I'm going way too fast for this. So I'm feeling that. That's what it feels like at the moment. It's like- <laughs> I know the feeling, bro. We're gonna, we're gonna get a stroller and we're gonna get, we're gonna get a bassinet. And they're like, which, which, what? <laughs> it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that, that's life in full speed right there. It is. It's wonderful. And um, Georgia, who's 15, is organizing a, a kind of like a reveal, a baby shower reveal. I don't know if that's a thing in America, but when you get the genetic testing done, you can tell what, you know, if it's not a penis or a vagina, basically. So, you know, she's organizing that, which is pretty great. Do you know what, what form of an object she'll use to reveal? Like, I know some people do a cake that's a, a blue or a pink frosting. Some people do balloons with colors that come out. I'm not clear. I'm crossing my fingers for uh, a burnout where the tires smoke either pink or blue. <laughs> <laughs> 
Pro Am. It would be an interesting business model, actually. <laughs> uh, creative baby reveal. <laughs> too true, man. Well, I don't, I don't know. Like, as long as it's human and healthy, is really all I care about, Jesse. And if it, if if it comes out with a penis and all it wants to do is wear dresses, then that's what's going to happen, and it's going to be awesome. If it comes out with a vagina and all it wants to do is, you know, dig ditches and order people around, then that's what it'll do. And I just don't care. I love it. That's I, it. I could, that's the makings of a, of a special dad. Well. I've been George's stepdad for five years now. You know, I understand that a lot of parents want their kids to be a certain thing. Their kid's going to be whatever their kid is. They'll be guided by the guiding principles that you demonstrate. They won't do what you tell them. They'll do what they see. So I guess all we can do is allow this kid just like George's, like, as you grow up, you're going to be exactly who you came out to be. We're just going to hopefully show you by the way that we behave, the kind of, you know, the limits of you know how you interact with other people that will hopefully give you the best experience of what it is to live in a society if that makes sense yeah i mean i think it's a nice perspective my feeling is we can only be so lucky to have our kids feel like they can fully express themselves you know what a gift whatever that may look like hopefully they feel comfortable to do that (laughs) yeah yeah, well, we're we're pretty lucky to live in a in a part of the world where it's okay for them to be whatever they want to be. You know, uh, we just uh, only a year and a half ago voted marriage equality is go for it in Australia, and which is great as a, as a nation for having that. And so that that's pretty great to be able to grow up knowing that. I mean, there's people close to me who grow up thinking I'll never get married, so what's the fucking point? I'm just going to trash myself and I'll just go out on the pills every weekend because. Why, mm. why should I care? I'll never be able to participate in this society the way it's set up for everybody mm. else, so fuck it. And now these same people are like, oh, wow, look, look what I can do now. I can, why, now it's important to save for a house. Now it's important to. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Now, I've, just for, for people, you know, to get people up to speed, you know, you and I have known each other for, I'm going to say nearly 10 years. I think we met in, 20, we met in 2011. But early 2012. We met in early 2012, January 2012. Did we meet through the summit boat? I was on that boat, but I didn't meet you. We met for the first time at uh, the summit ski hill. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was one of those. How do you know Jesse? Oh, we were on a private plane together. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the more interesting weekends of my life. Uh, and we were both doing very different things at the time. I was about four and a half weeks out from having just got divorced. I didn't know what the fuck was happening with my life. And you were very heavily in the music and tech world. Uh, people will have known your story. They've listened to your show on the, the podcast before, which I'm really grateful for that you came around and we had a we had a good chat about where you're going. Now, tell me, the last time we, we heard about the Jesse Israel story, Meditation was a part of it, but you were definitely very much in the tech space. Mm. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. The, the last time we spoke, I believe I was just beginning to transition out of the music industry. Does mm-hmm. that sound right? Or was I, was I yeah. still running the label? Uh, no, you were just beginning. Trans- you were just starting to get out. Yeah. Because I remember when I was on the podcast at that point, it must have been four or five years ago, feeling really raw. 
and feeling excitement and, and just a ton of self-doubt around what was, what was going to happen next. But the conversation that we had gave me so much, I want to say hope, like a sense of knowingness that it was going to work out because we connected about so many things on such, on such a meaningful level. And I still remember to this day um, uh, just how good it felt to do that. And it was one of the first podcasts that I ever did. And, and I learned in that moment how much I value these types of conversations. It's actually a big part of the work that I do now. So I'll take a moment to say thank you <laughs> and thanks to the podcast and the listeners for, for creating that opportunity. It was a really cool moment for me. I'm really grateful for that, man. I think, you know, I was just having a chat yesterday with a, a, the, the bloke that's up on the show today how, about how much we're missing out on by only consuming thoughts and ideas in a headline or a 10-second soundbite. We're missing so <laughs> much. We're missing so much. And it's not even the full picture. It's if I showed you in Australia, we have this very famous painting in the National Gallery by Jackson Pollock called Blue Poles. If I showed you a 10-centimeter by 10-centimeter chunk of it, You'd be like, okay, I'll get it. It's abstract. Great. The thing is 10 <clears throat> meters wide and five meters tall. You know, you got to stand on the other side of the room and look at it for a while before you go, oh, <clears throat> right. And the same way, I think that communicating thoughts and ideas through just tiny little, <clears throat> little bits, little tweets, little Facebook headlines just doesn't give us the picture and <clears throat> our reactions are inappropriate for what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think it's becoming a lost art form to really just be one present to a full conversation or to um, a full experience around a transmission of knowledge or a transmission of an experience that's being shared. I think that's what's one thing that's kind of a lost art. I think the other lost art piece is, is, is socializing on a deeper level where we're not only talking about where we're from, what we wear, what we do, although. I'm all about talking about those things too. Those things are important, but also talking about those, those deeper human experiences and just feeling like we can go there as uh, social humans. And uh, I remember doing that for one of my first times publicly on the podcast. So, yeah. Well, man, I'm grateful that I managed to play a small role in what was going on with you. Uh, many conversations on this show happen around transitional moments, particularly exploring what it was that set someone on a path you know, what was building up before that point where you went, nah, I'm putting the indicator on, here I go. And that's it. The bridge is smelling the burning bridge behind me. I'm out. And <laughs> it's, I don't know what's ahead, but I know it feels right. And I get, yeah. the, I get the sense that that's <laughs> the story you're about to tell me. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, th thanks for pushing it forward like that. that. That's really where I was at at that period of my life. I knew what no longer felt like a fit for me from a work perspective. And I, I, but I didn't know what I did want to do. So the compass that I had when I made the decision to leave the company that I had been running for nine years since I was 20. And it was the only thing that I knew record label, music business, tech, tech, music stuff. Um, the, the, the only compass that I had to move forward into the next chapter was knowing what I didn't want to be doing anymore. And there were certain elements of that that felt really clear. And I guess the other piece of the compass was, that I was going to follow my gut around what felt good. And I was in a really privileged situation to have about six month runway of savings to embark on that journey and to not have to, I'll say, quote unquote, worry about money, although it was what I worried about the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it really is something when you have that 
people talk about savings and saving for a rainy day, but what it bought you, and I, I, I have the same thing. I was unemployed uh, at one point in my career, uh, right, right before we did the podcast, actually, and I was very lucky to have about six months worth of rent that mm-hmm. meant, yeah, sure, I've still got a, I've got to find a job in a hurry come June, but here we are in February, I've got time to go for a walk and think about what's going to happen next. I don't have to panic. I'm, I can think about that in May. It's giving yourself that space, giving yourself that time is, you couldn't put a dollar value on it, man. I mean, I think when it comes to having money saved or when it comes to spending money, to be able to spend money to allow ourselves to figure out what we're here on this earth to do or to have more space to do that is a, is a, is a huge gift and a great use of funds. And I've also, I'm also really cognizant of the fact that not everyone has the fortune to have a six-month window. And I still feel confident that, that people are able to have a similar experience of being on the path to figure out a better fit in regards to worker purpose, even if the, even if the runway is not there. So um, yeah, like for us to be able to have that, so huge, so grateful for it. So what did you do in that time? What did like what was the day after like? What did you do? <laughs> it was the strangest feeling because I started my label when I was a sophomore at NYU and my whole existence existence in New York was was around doing something, either being a student, well really the first year I was in New York, I was a student. And then the second year forward, I was running a business pretty much full-time. For a couple more of those years, I was still a biz- uh, still a student, full-time student, full-time running a, a label. I graduated NYU. I went right into running the label full-time. And so I'd always really been doing something in my time in, the, in, in New York City. So there I was. I was 29 years old. And it was the first time in 10 years that I wasn't well, I'm probably the first, it was the first time ever that I wasn't really giving myself to something because even before NYU, I was giving myself to high school. So it really was the first time in my life where I just, I didn't have anything to do. And I woke up and um, I was able to enjoy it for two weeks. Really, that's it. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I just, I messed around. I went on a bunch of dates. I was, you know, single man at the time. <laughs> I ate a bunch of good food. I hung out with friends. Uh, I went on adventures. I had a, a one or two other friends who were who were in between work, and uh, we took some great bike rides. It was really beautiful. Then I started getting in my head and starting to freak out. I did a lot of comparison. It was this thing I hadn't really experienced before. Whereas uh, maybe because I identified so much with the success of running a record label, I always felt good and grounded in in who I was as a career person. So I didn't do much comparison, but here I was at this period of my life where I was no longer identifying with that work because I had moved on from it. And I realized that so much of my identity was wrapped up in my career and in my success and not really identifying with it in this period of transition. It became really easy for me to just go on social media and look at all my peers and go, damn, they're continuing on their path. They're continuing to move up in their jobs and boost the valuations of their startups and felt behind and started to really question my worth in comparison to my peers. And because of the advent of social media, which had you know, been around for a few years at that point, <laughs> it made it, I'd say, extra easy to go there 
to that place of, of comparison to my peers. I'm sure you've talked about this a lot on the show. Uh, and it was tough. So I had to keep myself busy. It's <laughs> a, it's a dangerous thing, Jesse. And you know, we, we talk about, you know, that time in your life and I, I was 39 when well, I'm 10 years old. What you're 35 now? I'm 34. 34. Yeah. So I was 10 years older when, than you, when that happened to me and unemployed in a foreign country, sitting on Instagram, looking at guys my age who've got two kids and they're taking a photo from their beach house that they've just bought and, you know, <laughs> thinking right, about, right. man, their, their pension plan must be stocked, you know, because they've got their shit together <laughs> and they've had, they've been saving since they were 20 and, or, or indeed, you know, through the, the, the crew of people that we met, you know, people younger than me who have, you know, just bought the third Lambo and going, fuck yeah, Bitcoin, you know, and I'm, and I'm <laughs> yeah. like, and, you know, ultimately that has to happen to the point for me and it had to happen enough where I'm just like, it's impossible and futile to compare myself to anybody, my age, my gender, my space, my social, because nobody's situation is, the, the, the variables that would have had to happen like we're both human, that's about it. The variables between us are incomparable, but it is so easy. When we're looking at the greatest hits on Instagram, you know, when we're looking at that drone shot that they got their friend to fly over and get, like <laughs> that's not real even. Even that's not real. But, it's, but yeah, it can stab you in the heart, man. I know that feeling. Wow, totally. And I think about how many other people are going through that same experience. You know, every second, millions of people going through that same that same lived experience while using something like Instagram. And I feel for people. You know, I I've I've been able to build tools to make my experience online a more enjoyable one as I'm consuming and, and as I'm sharing, but still very much get affected by it. Even feeling more grounded in a career in a different period of my life. You know, I I still feel that. And I, I gotta say. It. I'd say more times than not, I probably feel a little shittier after I load Instagram than before. And I saw a recent study that showed that this is it's pretty common, right? The study looked at people moods before they opened and then after just with, a, a, I think it was a small 15 minutes of, of use and how the mood decrease occurred, you know, pretty consistently for people. That's so interesting. And for me, like, I don't think it's about not using social media. I just think it's it's about shifting the way that we look at it, shifting the way that we use it, shifting our relationship to it, which I'd be happy to talk about at some point. Oh, man. It just doesn't feel sustainable any other way. <laughs> I, I, I listened to Sam Harris and Roger McNamee, and then I read Roger McNamee's book, and within 10 days, every Instagram, every Facebook product's off my phone. I'm like, like I can't possibly compete my addict brain cannot compete with the mm. AI that is 100% designed to keep me hooked, mm. varying the rewards of, you know, sh showing like hacking my attention in such a way, I, I can't do it. So I've, I've, I've got someone to, to look after my Instagram for me now because not everybody has that, but I've just taken it off my phone. Right. It's gone. That's great. Yeah, it's great. That's great, yeah. <laughs> that, what a beautiful thing to be able to do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> The, my because I'm not at a place where I, I have someone fully running mine. Yeah. I found some middle grounds that have been so helpful for me. And I, I turned off all notifications on my phone. So the only way to get through when my phone says in my pocket or sitting on my desk uh, is if there's a phone call. 
but besides that, my screen always just says the time and it's been such a beautiful change. <laughs> I also turned off my badge notifications for most of my apps. So I'll, I check on my own terms and I tend to tech, check texts and Instagram DMs in batches as opposed to as they come in. And that's been such a game changer for me. Well, good on you for having the control to do that. I don't have that. I tried all, <laughs> I tried all of those things and then I'm still, every time I had a moment when no one else was in the room, like my wife walked out the room to grab something from the cupboard and walk back. In that eight seconds, I would be on there masturbating my brain, looking for the serotonin, trying to find that little, you yeah. know, trying to get that, you know, you just jerking my brain off, looking for people. Love me, love me, love me. Where's the likes? Like, I, <laughs> yeah, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop doing it. I couldn't stop doing it. So I had to take it off. Let's talk a bit about, you know, being in that, that moment of, of comparison and, and like, oh, there's a photo of a person that I know uh, on a heli skiing adventure in Alaska, and here I am. I've got no job. What am I doing? Uh, <laughs> I better do something. Where do you begin to start exploring as to which way you're going to point the steering wheel, Jesse? I started looking at the things that felt fun and energizing to me. I gave myself permission to just lean into those. And the permission that I gave myself was to not worry about how they would make money, but how to just follow them. So the things that did that for me at that period were group bike rides that I was organizing. I was a couple of years into a bike club called the Cyclones, something that I started doing. Yeah. Oh, you know. <laughs> I just flashed the a gang sign. sign. I just flashed a secret gang <laughs> sign at Jesse because I was I'm toying with the idea of opening a Sydney chapter of the Cyclones. We may yet do oh, that. Oh, that's right. We may that yet do right. that. I forgot we talked about that. Yeah, we may yet do that. <laughs> Cyclones was bringing me so much joy. And it had been for the past couple of years before I'd even left my label. But I loved organizing groups. I loved bringing people together to do something together. And I loved leading those rides. I loved getting in front of the group and speaking about where we were going to go. You know, Cyclones, the whole concept is meet great people while we explore our spots of the city and boroughs we've never been to before. Go on adventures, meet new people. So I gave myself permission to just lean into Cyclones more. And I had, I was on a trip maybe two months after I, I'd left my company. I was on a trip. I went to Africa and I was traveling around and I got to spend some time um, working at a small rural school and uh, met a bunch of students who had these major commutes. They were walking about 20 miles round trip. I'm not sure what that translates to. Uh, so 10 miles is 16 Ks and 16 Ks is about, that's about a four hour walk. So double that. That's to get to right. and from so, school. So they were doing, yeah, it was about, it was, it was, it was up to four to five hours each way. Serious commutes in these yeah. rural areas. Dangerous for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the situations that they were dealing with very, very far from our reality and that the danger for them was were wild animals and also worm infestation in their feet. However, these were kids, because they, they would they walk, walk without shoes. These are kids who are so awesome, so talented, and just like had such a great zest for life. And it was clear that the long commutes were just pre preventing them from being the students they could be or for the leaders they could be, because they would miss periods of school. They'd get home when it was too dark to do homework. They'd fall asleep in class. And... I was so into the Cyclones Bike Club at the time. I remember asking some of the local um, pastors and community organizers in this area of Tanzania that I was in about if bicycles 
could benefit these students. And they had told me that one bicycle could impact an entire classroom and that uh, four bicycles could impact an entire school and probably an entire community or village. So I came uh, back to this, uh, created a little plan while I was out there with some of the, uh, my local peers in Tanzania around uh, uh, building a bike share program and that the students could use. So when I came back to the States and we started doing our cyclones rides, we had a, a deeper purpose as to why we were riding. It was to not only, uh, it was, it was to not only go on these fun adventures, but it was also to raise funds and to create awareness for a bike share program that, that we would later launch in Tanzania. And this is really cool because at each ride, I could see that people were feeling more called to being part of the cyclone bike community because there was a way for them to contribute and be involved in a way that went beyond just the immediate group. It was really cool to see, especially when it was time to announce the Indiegogo campaign. We did a crowdfunding campaign for it. And when it was time to announce it online, we had about um, 600 of our, of our uh, community members put it on their social media accounts. So we were able to, to raise the funds for this bike share program and for this initiative in, in a matter of hours. And it was, it was awesome. I loved creating this with the community. And I loved seeing that we could use our collective voices to raise money and, and build something really quickly. So that was a really fun way for me to give myself to something. And we made a, a, a great video that's still online when I was able to kind of lean into my film study skill set and really got to lean into community building in a cool way. We wound up launching the program. We did bike share program in five schools, helped a ton of students. And then with the extra funds that we raised, we were able to launch bike shops run entirely by women who are trained as bike mechanics. Uh, and those are those have become sustainable businesses. So we have two bike shops in rural Tanzania that are still running and making money today that employ locals and, and help locals in, in their endeavors with better transportation. So that was a really fun way to to put my time to, to some new stuff. Oh, that's that's just fantastic. And my kid G, she's just come back from uh Southeast Asia and she was there on a volunteer trip and something very similar they gifted a bike to a kid who has to she was essentially having to sleep at school because the walk mm. was too far and it's extraordinary how much you know a bicycle just a, this simple invention from I don't know 300 years ago 200 years ago can change someone's life completely because you don't it's it's not a horse you don't need to feed it and look after it you know you, can, you don't need to be that physically fit to all you got to do is be able to balance and you, right. can go, you can go and it just increases the distance you can travel in a day extraordinarily it's a freaking great piece of technology and i'm a big fan of them it <laughs> is. and in, in, in addition to being so functional they're so fun dude you know there's it's... there's something about just just riding bikes with friends or just cruising on a plane by yourself i mean there can be real real beauty in that and fun in that too I was uh, very fortunate. I spoke with uh, Damien Eccles from the West Memphis Three the other day, and he was telling me like one of the first things he did when he got out, he was he went straight to New York to get as far away as he could from Arkansas. And for one of the first things he did was in New York City, he just walked past a bike shop, he walked in, he just bought one, and he just started riding bicycles. And he said just to feel the wind in his face again after 18 years and 78 days in prison was just like. You know, wow. Yeah. 
It's amazing, dude. It's yeah, amazing. Incredible. Amazing. Uh, meditation's always been a part of your life. In fact, I remember that that was how we really connected because we were staying in the same condo that weekend that we first met and I caught you just kind of sitting by yourself uh, with your, your facing the wall early in the morning. I'm like, what's that guy doing over there? And then later on I asked you, I was like, no, no, I meditate twice a day. Yeah, he should. Here's, here's the number of my guy. Go talk to my guy. <laughs> and... But now meditation has become something quite extraordinary for you. You're, you're a meditation teacher now and you've created this extraordinary movement around meditation. When it comes to wanting to bring people together, when did that combine with your love of meditation? How did that become the next thing you became to work on, Jesse? Well, right after we launched the Cyclones Bike Share program that I just described, it started to become too cold in New York. This happens every year. Once the winter hits in, we have to pause the cyclones, bike rides. It's just too cold. So we launched this, this great campaign and it felt awesome. And then everybody kind of started to hide in their apartments. It got too cold to ride bikes. The cyclones went into its, you know, eight month hiatus that it goes into every year. And then I was faced back with this feeling of, I have nothing to do. Everyone else is kicking ass. I'm falling behind. What am I going to do with my life? And I just turned 30. And I had noticed that at this, in this period of time when I was you know, really sort of aware of what was going on around me and looking for new things to get myself to and experiment with, that more and more peers from the music industry and from the tech industry were interested in meditation. There was more science coming out about the benefits of meditation, but I think it was just becoming something that was more common to speak about, especially in the entrepreneurial space. And I saw that more friends were, were learning how to practice. So ha having the free time that I had, and also I, the yearning to continue to gather people, I decided to start to host group meditations for my peers, really from the music and tech world. And that we would do it at my buddy's apartment. The first one, we decided we would call Medi Club, short for Meditation Club. So my buddy's apartment in, in downtown Manhattan. And about 20 people came together for it. I wasn't teaching meditation. I was, I was simply a student. I just had a great love for it. And there was a meditation teacher that we came in, an incredible teacher named Emily Fletcher, who's still a teacher of mine today. Um, and she helped us lead that first meditation. And um, there was this great feeling of coming together to practice in something. There was something kind of vulnerable about sharing quiet with people that I knew from my career world, essentially. We decided we would do it again for the second Medi Club. We uh, actually didn't have a teacher. We just had 20 minutes to go into quiet and people could practice whatever style of meditation they were learning. And then afterwards, we would talk a little bit about the different styles of meditation we were checking out and we we're all kind of making sense of each other's stuff. And it felt good to have a place where people that practice different lineages and styles of meditation could do it together. But I felt called in that second Medi Club after we had just shared quiet together to share a little bit about what was going on in my life and to speak to some of the things that we've referenced so far on the show talking about the social media comparison, the confusion around purpose, the uncertainty around what was next, and just opened up in front of this group of people that were, you know, I'd always seen as very successful and entrepreneurial and creative. And it was scary to share in that way, but I felt like it was safe for me to do that because we had just meditated together. 
And after I shared and asked the room, well, does this relate to anyone? You know, does this resonate? There was this period of quiet where no one said anything. And I was just absolutely devastated feeling. (laughs) And then one person, one brave soul chimed in and spoke about how they were experiencing very similar stuff. And then someone chimed in after that. And then it was just this big conversation of, you know, 20 plus people who were so eager to talk about the real things that were happening in their lives. And the more one person would share honestly about their experience, the more someone else would then want to go and do that. And we were just modeling it for each other. It's okay to talk honestly in this space. This is the real experience I'm having. You know, and you'd see you'd see some the relief that people would have when they would hear that other people were going through the same stuff. There was something so validating and healing about it to hear it, but also to say it. The same feeling that I had when we were on the show together and we created that space together. And, and you were one of the first first men to ever talk to me about mental health um, and gave me permission to talk about my challenges with anxiety and panic attack when I was um, in my 20s. And so that, that was happening and coming to life. And no one wanted to leave the group. It felt so good to have that sense of belonging and connection. And, it, and what, was, what was so, I think, extra eye-opening for me about it was it was, it was this group of people that were so successful. It, it was lots of the people that, that, I, that I was seeing on Instagram and, and going, wow, I'm jealous of your relationship. Wow, I'm jealous of your career. Wow, I'm jealous of your object. But they were having all the same things about me and about other people in the room. And we just realized we're all going through it in our own way. And hearing that we were all going through it in our own way together created this sense of support. It was, it was so valuable. So we decided that we would continue to do that every month. And MediClub started to grow. And we didn't have a website. We actually still don't have a website for MediClub, but we didn't have a website. We didn't market it. It just was a word of mouth thing. And after a few months, you know, we would, we would have a hundred plus people standing room, my buddy's uh, loft. And we realized that something was working and that there was an opportunity to take the values of that experience, the, the sort of key ingredients of what made that experience special and spread it with the city at large. And that's how the Big Quiet was born. I was on um, an art board in New York here called um, Summer Stage. And what they do is they have festivals in 18 different uh, city parks throughout the summer season. And I, I presented and pitched to the board that the Medi Club community, which is a couple hundred people at that time, could host a mass meditation at summer stage at the Central Park venue, which is this legendary stage right in the smack center of Central Park, you know, some of the great bands of our time have performed and that we could do a mass meditation there before one of the performances that summer. And they went for it. It was incredible. They really took a risk with us and they backed it. It was the first time the City Parks Foundation of New York backed something like that in Central Park. And we were able to go to the MediClub community and I was able to say, hey, we've got this venue. They're going to allow us to have 1,500 people. It's going to be free. It's going to be fully staffed. And I, 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 to the MediClub community, said, what can we do to make this great? And in the same way that we rallied the Cyclones to put together different components to make our bike share program a success, the same thing happened within the, big, within the MediClub community. And these pods formed. 
people who were doing social media in their careers created a pod to do social media for the first big quiet and to do PR and a, and a pod form to do, you know, stage logistics and production. It was really cool to see people use their gifts in this way. And in the same way that when we announced the Cyclone bike share program, we used our collective voice to, to really blow it up. We did the same thing with the big quiet and we announced it and a bunch of us spread the word about it. We got some great press. There was a killer feature in the wall street journal about our, are the MediClub community and this initiative that we were bringing to the city. And um, we filled up all the spots. And sure enough, we had this great experience. It actually rained at the first big quiet, but gently. And it was in the summertime. And um, it was actually really beautiful to bring all these New Yorkers together from different boroughs to come and have this moment. And then these incredible bands performed. There's some of my favorite bands that summer that happened to play after us at the big quiet. Um, and uh, it just felt really good. And I continue to give myself to that work. It wasn't making money at the time. We didn't charge for anything at that point. But like I had said earlier, it was energizing to me. And it was fun. And that was the main reason why I gave myself to it. It was also totally terrifying and uncomfortable. Probably more uncomfortable than anything I'd done before. <laughs> hosting these group gatherings, speaking in front of groups, sharing vulnerably, especially as the MediClub group started getting bigger. And then, uh, and then hosting the first big quiet in front of this large group being on stage at Central Park. These were actions that sat on my biggest trigger points and fears. Before I started meditating, I had serious fears around public speaking and getting in front of groups in this way. It's the type of thing like I would lose sleep over before I'd have to present, you know, when I was in college, I couldn't sleep the night before I could give presentations. So here I was doing, you know, creating these experiences in very vulnerable settings with people. So it was energizing and exciting. It was also totally terrifying. And it was an opportunity to lean into fears. But I started to learn this feeling, which was before sharing at MediClub, before getting up at the Big Quiet, I have this feeling of, I, I just want so badly for this event to get canceled. So I don't have to get up in front of the group, but I would lean into it and have that experience and that connection. And then on the other side of it was this incredible power and magic energy around giving myself to something that was out of my comfort zone, but that really was in line with my gifts and what I think I'm on this earth to do. And that became a really important pattern, right? The fear. And then that, incredible, fulfilling, energizing feeling and the fear and the fulfillment and the fear and the fulfillment. And I still experience a lot of it, not, not to the extent that I used to, but I still experience a lot of that, but not to get too far ahead. It became something that I knew I wanted to continue to give myself to. So I started to lean into it. And what was so crazy was right around the period of time when I was about to run out of money, I started getting consulting gig opportunities to help businesses that had raised a little bit of money to create uh, meditation communities. This is when the meditation studios and the meditation businesses were just starting to pop up in New York. So because I had been giving myself to this hobby around building community around meditation, I started getting paid consulting opportunities to help other people do it for their businesses. And it was the coolest feeling to start to get paid for this thing that I really didn't have a skill set for before I was just doing it. And here there was a way to start making money to do it. It's a pretty cool feeling. And it was able to create a bridge for me financially 
It's not like I was swimming in it, by the way, but enough of a bridge financially to keep doing it. And I then had the courage to start to charge for and place value on the experiences that we were creating through MediClub and the Big Quiet, which at first felt like um, such an evil thing. People would say, and some people still say this, charging for meditation, that's wrong. Um, or, you know, or paying for these types of experiences is wrong. Very, very small percent of people. Because the majority of people said, hell yeah, I'll pay for this. This is one of the most important things that I'm experiencing socially. I'd love to pay 20 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever the price point may have been to have that experience. So then I started to bring in some, some revenue through charging for this thing that I was spending so much time on and that a bunch of volunteers were working on. And uh, soon we were able to start to hire people and I was able to build a small team and take a small salary for myself. And then MediClub continued to grow. Big Quiet continued to grow. We started getting these invites to do the Big Quiet at venues that I dreamed of when I ran my record label. You know, Madison Square Garden reached out to us about doing the first mass meditation at the arena. That was, oh that was incredible. We've done Big Quiet under the, the Big Blue Whale at the Museum of Natural History. We did a Big Quiet, the, the top three floors of the One World Trade Center, which is the highest point in the Western Hemisphere. It's the largest public event they had done there. 300,000 people tuned in online. So, you know, gathering these, these, these huge groups of thousands of people to share in meditation and then to have space for those meaningful conversations and then pulling from my music experience, we book musicians to perform um, once people open their eyes. And now we've been starting to work with more established musicians. We just had the R&B musician Miguel perform at our last big quiet, big, big performer, also a big meditator. So we're, we're able to align with incredible cultural icons who are using their influence as musicians to also create awareness for things like meditation and community and the big quiet. And it's been a really cool blending of my former career and the things that I liked about that part of my career, gathering people to celebrate music and working with people of influence in positive ways and this other new sort of skill set and work that I love doing, facilitating public experiences, public speaking, guiding meditations, sharing, telling my story vulnerably, but in a way that creates learnings for other people and for myself. And it's been really cool to have them come together. And, you know, now from a career standpoint, we've been really blessed to have the big quiet be a platform where we work with some of the, the biggest brands in the world, which used to be something that I thought was evil, just like how I initially thought charging was evil. But now I've been realizing for the past couple of years, having these huge brands use their resources to create experiences like this, to spread the opportunities for people to learn meditation and to engage in these, you know, different ways that we're creating through the big quad. It's like if brands are going to spend money on stuff, I'd like to help them do it authentically in this capacity. So we get paid by brands to do that. And we work with brands at our events. We charge tickets for our events, a very similar model to a music festival. And I, I also am now, uh, I speak publicly and go into Fortune 500s. I speak about community building leadership. And I lead mass meditations at companies, which I love. Last week, I flew to Atlanta to lead a mass meditation for 100 Coke employees and executives such a blast. And this has become my work. I'm still very much in process as I make sense of how to continue to build it and scale it and turn it into a lucrative business. And, um, 
there's still a lot of work to do. Two things. Two things. I just want to stop you and just ask you about. So, firstly, number one, the the pattern you described at feeling the fear, doing the thing you're afraid of, and then the next time it comes around, ah, it's not as a fr- it's still fr- frightening, but it's not as frightening this time around. There is something that. I talk about and it comes up on this show time and time and time again. Yeah, it's always going to be scary. It's just a little less scary the next time it happens. But the only way to make that happen is you've got to fucking do it. you just got to do right. it. And the benefit that you've found from doing that, standing on stage at Central Park in front of thousands of people, this is someone who couldn't sleep the night before talking at a university campus to like 20 <laughs> people, you know? <laughs> I get that. I get public speaking is a terrifying thing for many people and you just did it anyway. You just got to do it anyway. And then you found over time that the fear got less and less and less and yet the benefit of doing this thing became more and more and more. And it's extraordinary that that's how our body works. You know, if we if we get exposed to some sort of pathogen, our body feels sick for a little while, but then it develops a way to resist that. And the next time that pathogen comes along, we don't get sick. If we go to the gym, we lift something that's 20 kilos this week, our body breaks down a bit. Oh, that was tough. I'm going to have to get stronger to get that. Next week, we can lift 22. You know, it's just how our body works. Why should it be any different for our mind? Why? It's it's extraordinary the way you describe that pattern. Um, the second one I want to ask, and and I guess this would you know answer a few questions that people might have if they you know this is the first time they're listening to a podcast in their life and they're going meditation, sh meditation, whatever you know, big deal. You've got a mantra. Okay, I tried an app for a little while, but I was on a bus and it didn't work. When you stand in front of a room full of executives, whether it be the Coca Cola HQ in Atlanta or you know whatever, people who are highly paid, they haven't turned their notifications off. Their phones are pinging in their pockets as you're talking, you know, what do you tell them about why meditation is important and what it can bring to their life? Well, I like to start by helping people understand what's actually happening in their bodies when they're experiencing stress, because so many of us can now, unfortunately, relate to the experience of toxic stress, especially corporations. So I help people kind of ground around this conversation of meditation by talking about their physiology and by talking about the science behind it. So I start by helping people understand that when we experience stress, we're having a physiological reaction in our nervous system. And it's uh, a part of our nervous system that's actually really important. It's called the sympathetic nervous system. It's also referred to as the fight or flight response. And it's this part of our physiology that was incredibly valuable when we were hunters and gatherers, which is how we've existed for the majority of our time as a species. And it was so valuable when we were out there hunting for dinner and we were walking down the path, (laughs) uh, the old dinner path, and a saber-toothed tiger jumps out in front of you. Your body moves through a series of changes to help you stay alive, to either fight or hit the road and run for it. And I speak really quickly, and I'll speak to it here really quickly in regards to what those changes are. The first is in regards to um, our blood. Our arteries get smaller, and our blood gets thicker. This is so if we get bit by the tiger, we don't bleed out as much. We find that our blood becomes more acidic than alkaline. So if 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 the saber-toothed tiger were to taste our blood, it wouldn't taste as good. We find that our muscles tense up. So... 
we can use our energy in blasts to protect ourselves or to flee. Our reproductive system fully shuts down. Our digestive system fully shuts down. This is so we can use those two things which actually generate a tremendous amount of energy. When they shut down, we can use that energy to our survival. So it's really valuable when we are maybe going to be attacked by a predator. Now today, really just about 15,000 years later, after having lived and experienced life almost for a million years in this other way, right? So only 15,000 years now, we've been doing it a different way. Today, we experience that fight or flight response, that experience in the nervous system getting triggered regularly. A bad email creates that feeling in the stomach. Most of the experiences that I described in our physiology occur in that exact same moment. When a taxi drives by and honks loud, we have that exact same physio uh, physiological reaction, thinking that it's a saber-toothed tiger. And if you live in a modern city like New York, an individual is likely to have the fight-or-flight response triggered about 25 times or more in a single day. Now, when we feel the fight-or-flight response, when we feel that feeling in the stomach or that, I want to hit that taxi for you know honking at me, we may only feel it for a few minutes, but what science shows is that our body actually shifts into that physiological change for about an hour. So for lots of us, if we're experiencing the fight or flight trigger 25 times in a day, our bodies are constantly in fight or flight mode. And when we start to look at what this means for our health, we can start to make sense of why we have some real issues around our physical and mental health as a people. Uh, for one, the number one killer, at least here in America, of individuals is heart disease. We're talking about what happens from a physiological standpoint. Arteries getting narrower, blood thickening, you know, heart attacks are the number one killer for Americans. A lot of this has to do with stress. Heart disease wasn't really a thing just a couple hundred years ago. We look at how often our stomachs get up, upset. We think about all the um, acid that's released into our system. It you know, starts to have a really negative impact our bodies get into a state of constantly trying to stay alive, even though we don't really need them to do it, but because they're constantly trying to stay alive, our bodies are, are very much awake. So although we may feel exhausted because our bodies are always running in overdrive, when it becomes time to go to sleep at night, many of us have insomnia and great, great challenges sleeping, even though we feel so exhausted constantly. So I think when you, when you, when you pair that with, the bar that's been set so high in the workplace, or really just in our, in our modern lives, to constantly be hustling, do the quotation marks for that, to constantly be achieving, owning, posting, <laughs> getting it, doing it, doing, 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 it's totally becoming unsustainable. And the amount of toxic stress that we're experiencing on top of our bodies hurting in these ways is a lot, up to about 90% of doctor visits are now related to stress. This is very real. There's some, you know, some crazy stats. And you know, on top of that, I'm sure this is stuff you've talked about and touched on, on the show, you know, despite our advancements in technology and medicine and science, as humans, we're experiencing some of the highest rates of depression, anxiety, loneliness, um, poor health in our recorded human history. So there's a lot happening there. So when I talk about this in the corporate setting, which is, your, which is your question, I start by helping people understand what's really going on. This usually helps people wake up and go, whoa. <laughs> 
And then I start to talk about how meditation changes that. <laughs> yeah. I'm picturing there's there's the guy, he's pushing 50. He's done nothing but drive company cars for the last 30 years. He's got a park on the executive level. You know, his kids are in private school. His oldest is in college. He's got bills coming through the door left and right. He's trying to manage a company in five time zones. And He's like, this, what's this beardy guy from New York going to tell me? You know, what's this tall, lanky fellow going to tell me that I haven't got already? I'm just going to take some Xanax and I'll be sweet. I, I'm guessing after everything you just told him and what you're talking about is a drug-free intervention, he might, he might prick up his ears. He might listen. Yeah, they tend to, for sure. <laughs> Either way, this is the same stuff that I talk about with any, any modern human. Yeah. You know, like this. This relates to a business person. This also relates to an artist. Yeah. You know, this, this relates to people of, of different socioeconomic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. This relates to Democrats and Republicans. You know, they're like, we, we, we all share this stuff. Yeah. And that's also part of why when I get into the benefits of meditation, I think meditation is such a great tool for bringing people together, especially across lines of difference, because we're all looking for the healing that comes from it, for sure regardless of who we are or where we are. So you've done the pitch, like this is why you need it. How and how much meditation can start to make an effect? Well, just a few minutes of meditation a day will, will start to generate benefits. And this is shown through, through lots of studies. There are lots of different forms of meditation to practice with different amounts of practicing being encouraged every day different lineages, different styles. Some are more modern. Some are thousands and thousands of years old. There's lots of great ways to get into it, but they pretty much all generate valuable benefits. The style of meditation that I teach where I give people a mantra, which is similar to what you've learned, is particularly valuable because when people practice this style of meditation, they turn on the opposite part of the nervous system than what I described before. It's called the parasympathetic nervous system. This is the relax response or the stay and play response. And when we practice meditation, if that's once a day or twice a day, like what I practice, we turn on this other part of the nervous system and in doing so, shut off the fight or flight, the icky stuff that I described before. And what's great about this practice is we don't only turn it off and start to experience the opposite benefits. But by practicing daily, we start to create a more constant state of our bodies being in a relaxed response. And when our bodies are constantly in a relaxed response, we get to experience the benefits, which are the reverse of the symptoms that I described. So when you think about what that looks like, our arteries start to open up, blood starts to flow more fluidly, we start to feel healthier, right? Our blood becomes more alkaline. So the stomach issues that we have, start to shift. We start to feel cleaner and clearer. Our muscles loosen up, right? Tight. All these tight body parts that we're dealing with so regularly start to feel better. Our reproductive systems start to move in a very healthy, clean format. We start to digest food better. We get less tummy issues and food issues. We find that the reproductive system kicks on in a really healthy way. So it becomes easier to create kids. We feel more sexually charged and sexually connected. But probably the most important benefit is that our body stops pumping cortisol, which is that icky substance when we feel stressed that we can 
kind of feel in our bodies. That's that gross little feeling. And instead we start to pump serotonin and dopamine, which are these, these good enzymes and chemicals that we can experience through something like MDMA. And these chemicals create a, a sense of well-being and happiness in our bodies. And what starts to happen when we're turning on the relaxed response more regularly and experiencing these benefits more regularly is that all the blocks that we're used to, the stress, the toxic anxiety, the indecision, the inability to sleep, these things start to shift and we start to gain more clarity. We, we find that we're able to start to sleep finally. We start to feel rested. We start to look and feel healthier and we start to feel a clearer channel between our brains and our hearts and our guts. So we start to get more clear about why we're on this earth, what we're here to do, what we care about. Things like purpose start to become more clear. And when we have this clearer channel, when it comes to work, and we talk about you know how, what this means in the, in the workplace, when we're experiencing less stress, anxiety, and blocks, we become way more powerful in whatever it is we're trying to do. We're more creative. We're far sharper. We're more, way more decisive when we're making decisions. It's way easier to connect with people, to build influence over people, to come from your heart, use empathy, which makes us honestly better negotiators. <laughs> um, and without a doubt, better leaders, right? And what meditation in the workplace shows is that at least here in America, through several studies, an employee that's practicing meditation is likely to, to generate thousands of more dollars for the company than they would if they weren't. They see 80% less sick days than an employee that's not meditating. They get hours of extra time because of how much more productive they are. So, you know, if, if you're a manager, if you're a CEO, if you're an employee, whatever it looks like, this is valuable across the board for everybody. But when you're a, just a person, regardless of what it means for the performance of an organization, and you get to live your life with more clarity, with more connection to power, right? With more of an ability to give our gifts to the world around us, life starts to feel more colorful. It starts to feel more fulfilling. And we can start to enjoy our lives, which is not an easy feat. <laughs> There's still so much work. It's not like meditation is a cure-all. No, but it's a it's a tool set to get us on a path to start to enjoy our lives. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
when you talk about meditation, people well, they may have heard about it if they've been exploring it. Like, I don't have time for an hour of Vipassana in the day or not. I don't have time to spend 10 weeks sitting on my ass at the Vipassana course or however long it is. Like, it's a long time. Oh, 10 days it is. It's 10 days. But still, that's a long-ass time to be meditating from dawn to dusk. Like, for many people, they, they might be thinking that that's what it is. But then, on the other hand, there's I'm sure there's people listening who have downloaded an app and they've tried it and it's just too hard. It's just too hard. Their brain just goes and goes and goes and goes. So what would you say to people who are like, every time I try, I sit there, I listen to Andy Puttercombe and his beautiful voice. I listen to him trying to just, just, oh, there I am, I'm thinking. Oh, there I am, I'm feeling, you know. But it gets frustrating and sometimes it can be so frustrating because you're not good at it quickly. You just want to give up. What would you say to people about those times when your mind is wandering during a meditation? Well, the first thing I'll say is that there's so many different styles of meditation that everyone's going to say different things based on the style of meditation. In regards to this, this experience that you just described, which is the thing I hear the most, right? Which is, it's hard. I'm not good at it. It's not for me. What I remind people of is that the practice of, I'm using my quote fingers here, clearing your mind of thoughts is incredibly challenging for a non-monk. For a person that lives a modern life, like most of the people I'm, I'm guessing are listening to this podcast, or that can relate to the experience that you described of it feeling hard, this is totally natural. It's actually a really important part of what, we're, what we need to experience when we practice. This idea that meditation is only successful if we're clearing our brains and if we're not thinking and we're zen is a myth. It's a, it's a total myth. And there needs to be a reframe around what it means to have this practice. You know, to go back to your analogy before of the gym, to me, that's like someone going to the gym and, and you know, lifting some weights and being like, ah, oh, you know, I feel sore. Um, I'm not good at this. Working out's not for me. It's like, no, that's actually how it works. When we strengthen our muscles, we have an experience to it. It's not necessarily seamless. So understanding that, having that experience of my mind is wandering, I'm going back to my breath, or my mind is wandering, I'm going back to my mantra, or I'm going back to the word thinking, whatever the different practices, whatever it teaches, understanding that that process is the practice of meditation. It's just so important for people to reframe it so we can be easy on ourselves, so we can be gentle, so we can practice these practices effortlessly. Because I've been doing this for eight years and I still have meditations all the time where my brain's racing. But what I've learned is that's beautiful. That's the experience my body needs to have. A lot of times it's a form of releasing stress. So the first thing that I tell people is be easy on yourself. Let go of the expectation that meditation needs to be a certain way and understand that's great. The other thing I say is try different styles of meditation. If one app doesn't work for you, try another one. If a Buddhist style of meditation doesn't click, try a Hindu style of meditation like Vedic meditation or TM. There's lots of different styles of meditation to practice out there. And there's not one type that's right for every single person. Everyone's got their own fit. Between the cycling and the meditation, the, the through line for me and, and, and what you've done, and obviously with the music as well, you bring it together, is bringing people together standing in the same room as someone that might be a stranger to you at the start of the night and then someone you're familiar with and you feel comfortable with by the end of the night. As a society, 
I feel that we've forgot that that's what we used to do, that that's how we evolved. We evolved to be around people, yet we spend so much of our time isolated. We build houses, we build buildings where every single person has a room. That's not the way we used to sleep. We always we all used to sleep in the same room, right? right. And we, we isolate ourselves from each other. And yet people are flocking to these moments. They're paying to be somewhere where they can be with other people that, you know, they can feel safe around and go, oh, here I am. Different faces, different expressions, different tones of voice, different smells, oh, different conversations, different walks of life. I think that this has wide-reaching effects, man, not only on our own health, but to be honest, like our democracy, our, you know, the idea of kind of groups of people organizing more and more to be together is a is a powerful thing and is discouraged under some leaders. So that's a really interesting right. thing. Have you noticed people are, are just as excited about being in the same room as other people that feel the same as they are about I get to meditate? Yeah, I, I love that you're pointing this out because this has been one of the most interesting and powerful learnings over the past few years for me since I've been doing this, this community building work. It's seen that what I've come to believe is that what people crave most is human connection. And what people are waiting for is some form of permission to have that connection. And what I've seen is that permission can look like a bike ride. That permission can look like group meditation. Um, back when I did the show, I think I was running my cheeseburger club then. That permission can look like 10 men coming together to have a burger. People just need the permission to gather around some shared purpose. And then from there to have more of a human experience, less of an isolated experience, oh, uh, an in real life human flesh experience and not only social media experience. And where this becomes extra powerful is when that group of people are contributing to something together, creating something together like, a mass meditation. We all need to be quiet and participate in that way for it to work. Or a group bike ride where we need to all come together and rally as a crew to get to the destination or to pause the traffic on the street so we can all ride by together. That, um, Or if we're having a group conversation at a Medi Club, that when we break up into the small groups to share, that people are taking the time and, and presenting the courage to share their own story. Right When we're contributing to the greater experience, we start to feel like we're needed in some way. And it creates a sense of, of purpose. It's, it creates a sense of contribution that I believe we all want most. And what I think is missing from so many of our lives and our careers is we're not needed. We, we're not contributing. So many of us don't feel like we're contributing in a way that, that feels valuable to the greater good. So when we're able to create microcosms of this, if that's a cheeseburger club or if that's a 2,000 person mass meditation, that people are getting an experience that they don't only yearn for, but they know in their DNA as the way of existing, again, from how we existed in tribes. When we existed in tribes for so many years, the way that we survived was by contributing to the greater group. We relied on each other for survival. And if we didn't all step to the plate and contribute in some way, we were fucked. And Science shows that in the same way that I mentioned some of these good bliss chemicals get released when we meditate, when we 
contribute to groups, when we participate in groups, when we cooperate with other people, oxytocin is released, which creates a sense of well-being and happiness. So our bodies actually get something good from contributing, from giving back, and from being a part of something in real life. And one other stat that I, that I learned recently, which I think is so interesting, is that on longevity research has shown that individuals that are part of an in-real-life community that has either a faith-based or a spiritual-based foundation that gathers a minimum of four times a month, that the individuals in that community are likely to live up to 14 years longer than someone who wasn't a part of that community. So just to be really clear about that, it's a community where people can gather at least four times a month, and they're talking about themselves, not just you know the usual stuff. People that have that in their lives are likely to live 14 years longer than someone that doesn't. It's crazy. <laughs> and what they're seeing is that loneliness in its current state of epidemic, which it's in, is a killer. It's dark, but it's real. And, and the other thing, and then, then, I'll, then I'll pause on this for a second. The other thing I find to be so interesting about loneliness, right? We're talking about the opposite of when people gather around a shared purpose. The other thing that's so interesting to me about loneliness is um, a recent Cigna study, which is a group that puts out a report regularly about uh, social connection and social isolation. The recent study shows that really for the first time ever in the history of doing this study, the, the cohort of people, the demographic of people that are now reportedly the loneliest group of people are no longer people that are 55 plus. Right. It used to always be people who were moving into maybe I'm not sure if it's 55 or 60, but people who are moving into retirement or in retirement were always reportedly the loneliest group of people. But as of this year, or actually it was last year when the report came out, as of last year, it's the first time that shows that the loneliest cohort of people are 25 and under people who were previously the most socially connected, still the most socially connected, but because of the digital connection that's behind that, the theory is that while social media has us more connected, it also makes us lonelier. And that's just so wild to me that, that the youngest generation is the loneliest generation right now. That is uh, like, so you've just, you've just unpacked a few things that are, are, are really fundamental. And I just want to be sure that I, that I get it right. And that in the same way that we evolved to have this fight or flight, response or the stay or play response, the sympathetic or the parasympathetic, we also evolved to be at our healthiest when we are connected in real life with real people, processing micro expressions. This is what's happening in my life. I feel heard and understood. You've talked to me. I've made you feel heard and understood. Here we are. We're together. Let's hug. I've got a physical touch of someone near me. Okay, cool. And then we break out again and we go and do our thing for a week and then we come back again. And that if we do that, a couple of times in a month, our life expectancy is significantly higher. I can totally get why the illusion of being hyper-connected under the age of 25 can make you feel important or whatever. But what I see in the young people that are around me, I see that they're in their phone so much that they daren't leave the home in case they miss something that's going on and I can't respond straight away. Don't want to stray right. from the Wi-Fi signal just in case they can't write back to that streak. And I, I 
totally get that, which is why I guess for young people, why something like social sport can be super important or, you know, it's it's not my bag, but if it's for you, like church can be so important. Uh, Jesse, I really feel that between the bicycle rides and the mass meditations, that is just facilitating the interactions that will drive the change in the community that you're creating, you know, that this is the blank page and from here you get to write what you want because you're bumping up against other people that are in a similar direction and you can then take that connection and, and make something wonderful with it. And I'm sure you've witnessed some great things happen from people that didn't know each other before they showed up to one of your events and have then gone mm -hmm. on to create something fabulous, right? Yeah, like marriages and families. Yeah! Or like, or, or like businesses that create products that are helping the world. Man. Um, or, you know, best friendships. And I don't say this to toot my own horn because it's people who have, have gone out of their comfort zones to form those relationships on their own. But I've seen, I've seen these things happen for sure. I've also seen people just change the way that they live their lives or how they prioritize certain things in their lives through having more access to this stuff. Yeah. And this is why like the, the current philosophy that I believe in and I'm working with and I speak about, and it's a big part of what I teach is the importance of, and you nailed this on the head when you kind of did your summary a second ago of self practices and social practices, self practices being meditation, self care, how we are taking care of our bodies through exercise or eating, whatever. For me, the focal point is the self practices around meditation and the social practice is around participating in community. And that if we're cultivating something inside ourselves and that if we're cultivating something in connection with other people, we position ourselves to have a real impact on the world, to contribute meaningfully to the world and to be the leaders that I think we're all meant to be in our own unique ways. And that's why I'm so big on self-practice, uh, self social practice, and how do, those, how do those things become real in people's lives? So, you know, they can do what they're here to do. It's not easy to do either one of these things. This is part of why it's so needed right now, especially at a time where there's a conception that meditation is hard or that self-care is soft or only for, you know, hippies or at a time where the experiences that people could get through social practices like religion are not really clicking with our generation. You know, religion's changing fast. The dropout and unaffiliation with religion is at an all-time high by far. So it's like, where, how are people doing this stuff? How are they going to actually learn the self-care practices and do it in a way that feels in line with how, and who they are? How are they going to have access to these communities where they can have these experiences? And this is why I talk a lot about, about leadership and how anyone can play a role in building in this way. And anyone can be a leader in creating these, these types of experiences for people. It's something I'm really passionate about right now. So I'm going to say this right now. I'm going to get it on record, Jesse. Before the year is out, Jesse Israel, I want to help you come to Australia and do a big quiet at the Sydney Opera House. And yes. we'll have the inaugural ride of the Sydney Cyclones in the same weekend. <laughs> Yes. I'm, com I'm committing to that. Game on. Sydney Opera House has been one of our major uh, Big Quiet Destination dream list spots. And Cyclones with you has been something that we've talked about for years. So game on. I love it. Mate, <laughs> what, I, what I love about it is that because certainly if you're coming and going, 
to show up, here's the model, go replicate, go take it to your suburb, go do it in your city, go make your own, take it away. I love the idea of that and, and, and let that system propagate and come together once a month or four times a month or whatever it is and increase your lifespan. <laughs> make your life better for everyone. So we're going to do that. Mark my words, Jesse. We're going to make this reality. I love it. It's going to be awesome. I love you, it. You'll get to come out and meet the new baby. It'll be awesome. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a schlep from New York, but uh, you can get a direct flight from Dallas. But yeah, I just go to LA, visit some friends, then come over. <laughs> I'm, I'm planning on coming later this year. My, my mentor and my main teacher, uh, Johnny Pollard, lives in Australia. Oh. So I'm going to be coming out there to visit him. So, let's talk. Let's, let's talk. Up. We'll figure it out. Let's think it up. We'll find it. We'll find a free <laughs> night at the Opera House, and then we'll we'll get busy letting people know it's going to happen. <laughs> Jesse, have a fantastic night in New York City tonight. Everything you've 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 shared today, I know people are going to get a lot of value out of this, and I'm really grateful for your time, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me back, brother. I've, I've missed you. It's an honor to return to the show. And uh, let's do it again in five years. <laughs> Mate, it'll be quicker than that. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'm going to send an email right now to action what I just proposed to you. <laughs> all right, brother. Sounds great. That was Jesse Israel. If you like what you heard, uh, you can find out more about what Lucy's doing. TheBigQuiet.com. He's also on Twitter at Jesse Israel, J-E-S-S-E-I-S-R-A-E-L. And yes, I've already started asking around about how I can make a mass meditation happen at the Sydney Opera House with Jesse. So trust me, I'm working on it. Now, you know me, I, I like to try and do the things I say I'm going to do. So we're on the way. So thank you so much for listening. Hope you had a great week. If you've not checked it out already, uh, remember Dad Pod goes up every Wednesday. The link is at osherginsberg.com. So if you want to check out Dad Pod episode two, it's out on Wednesday. If not, I will speak to you Friday. I'm off to warm up a bottle. Maybe even change a nappy. Yeah, I know, buddy. Okay. Until we speak later in the week, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.